So I think that's really important is that we become familiar with um, sensitive communication and, and recognizing that, you know, these illnesses are not trivial and that mental health is physical health, right? It is the same thing. It impacts us the exact same way. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inner Wealth, the Forbes Ignite podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal, CEO of Forbes Ignite. And every week I'll be sharing with you my conversations with unique, creative, and innovative people across all different industries. These are people who are intellectually curious explorers who are also redefining what it means to be successful today. From personal to professional, we cover it all to understand what drives our guests to blaze their own trails and create nimble solutions within the industries that touch each of our lives. Our guest today is Daniel Almeida, a neuroscientist and mental health educator based at the Douglas Research Center at McGill University. Daniel is an ambitious scientist who's at the cutting edge of innovation around post-mortem neuroscience. I'm fascinated by Daniel's work, which unlocks a lot of our understanding of mental health and most notably, those who die by suicide, which I learned from Daniel is the most appropriate way to speak of those who have left us this way, rather than saying committing suicide. I really admire his drive to use these findings to create better and more effective ways to diagnose and most importantly, treat mental illness. We talk about everything from having a safe space to talk about hard topics like death and dying to responsible mental illness communication. I know you're going to love what he has to say. Here's our chat. Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for joining. How's it going? It's going well. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation. I I really feel like these past couple months that we've been working together, I've been learning so much from you. And there's never really been a time where we were able to really just dive in and get to know more about your research, what you're doing, your experiences, and what led you to what you're doing today. So I'm really excited about that. How's everything been? Let's start there. Yeah, um, I think everything's been going really well. It's really cool as a neuroscientist, also be able to work with experts in design thinking and marketing. And so I feel like I'm learning so much from working with other professionals. You know, most of my job is working in a lab every single day. And so it's great to see how we can actually apply neuroscience to solve real world problems, um, which I'm really taking out of, out of the experience. And so you're working over at McGill, right? Yeah, uh, McGill University, but also the Douglas University Institute for Mental Health. Tell me a little bit more about your research that you're doing there. Yeah, so I'm actually a post-mortem brain scientist. So I work on the brains of people who have died. I specifically work on the brains of people who were depressed and died by suicide. And I'm really interested in how a history of childhood abuse actually changes the brain and basically increases a person's risk for developing a mental illness. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about, uh, you know, mental health and the neuroscience of mental health and whatnot. That's incredibly fascinating. So that's, that's a very specific area. That's something that is incredibly fascinating. I love to know what life experiences basically brought you to where you are today? Yeah, so um, this is a question I get all the time because everyone always asks, why did you end up in such a field so specific? When I was in high school, so many years now, um, my dad actually suffered from a a really terrible stroke. So I was the person that found him at home. Um, By the time that had gotten to him, he was paralyzed. We were the only ones at home at that time. And during sort of like the eight months of watching his brain heal, I became so fascinated by the idea of 
how do life experiences change our brain? And, you know, how is our brain so plastic to our life experiences? Um, I remember there are times where I would like go to the hospital and I would touch his hand and I'd say, dad, I'm building like neural connections to your brain. Or we'd engage in like cognitively stimulating uh, conversations. And I'd say, you know, I'm getting your prefrontal cortex activated. Um, and so I became really fascinated in sort of life experiences. And, and for me, this was a life experience that shaped my brain in a positive way. It, it motivated me and inspired me. But for some people, they go through life experiences that, you know, aren't as positive and, you know, lead them to developing a mental illness. So that's really my whole fascination is sort of how do life experiences change our brain? Yeah, that's, that, that's incredible. So you started on that journey even before you were at university. This was something that you've always been incredibly interested in and you've developed a an incredible amount of knowledge and skill sets. And I would love to know, in a day of a neuroscientist, for a day for Daniel, what do your daily activities typically look like? <laughs> a lot of different things. So it'll probably be a little bit different depending on what type of neuroscientist you are. Um, as a postmortem neuroscientist, I'm often working with brain samples from our brain bank. I know people are always sort of interested to hear what a brain bank is, but we have over 3,000 human brain samples uh, in our brain bank. And the ones of individuals who died of mental illness, they're actually, uh, they go through a process called the psychological autopsy method. So just like you can build an autopsy of a person's body, you can build it of their mind as well. And so uh, I think a lot of my research and a lot of my day is sort of designing experiments and thinking about how we could answer the question of how does childhood abuse impact the human brain? Um, also a lot of writing, a lot of writing grants. And I think one of my favorite things about being a neuroscientist is all of the education I get to do. Neuroscience is like right now at the cutting edge of science. It's sort of the, the area of science that's growing the fastest. Uh, and so I love being able to talk about some of those advances as well. That's probably my favorite part of being a neuroscientist. What are some of the most surprising things just through your studies and through the work that you do that you found specifically around being a postmortem brain neuroscientist? The thing about postmortem brain samples is that it provides a snapshot of the brain, right? It provides a snapshot of when the individual died. Uh, it's not like we can look at changes over time because the person's no longer living. But what I did realize is that postmortem brain samples provide you with this really unique opportunity to understand the brain while actually working with it, right? There are other techniques like brain imaging that look at, you know, uh, differential activity in the brain of a person who's alive. There are behavioral studies, there are animal studies, but it's really only with postmortem brain research that you can actually get in there and study the molecules and the makeup and the biology of the brain, um, which I think is really cool. Postmortem brain research is, is challenging. Techniques that work really well in other tissue samples don't work in human brain samples. Uh, and there's a lot of optimization and a lot of sort of challenges. But the great thing about that is that when you innovate, it's really exciting because you ha had gone through so much to get there. And when you get there, it feels really good. What I would love to know is there is a lot of findings and a lot of learnings that you have as a postmortem neuroscientist, what kind of findings essentially can help 
influence the way that we treat each other today and how we can take care of each other based on the work that you do? Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating question. And it's something I'm really passionate about because, you know, all this neuroscience would be for naught if I couldn't sort of apply it and lead to policy changes. And so I think that my research can help sort of uh, in a couple of places. So one, it can show us sort of the the linkage that childhood abuse has to mental illness and and explain and help us develop better models of how we can treat individuals who had a history of childhood abuse and then developed a mental illness as well. I think a lot of other brain research is showing us the importance of social connectivity. There was, I think, the longest standing longitudinal study. It was done by Harvard, and it basically followed up these uh, men who are now, I think, in their 90s and basically followed them for like 80 years. And what they found was that the, the one predictor of good psychological health, good physical health is our social connections and making sure that those social connections are strong. This is also the case when you look at models of suicide, right? It's often the lack there of social connection um, that outweighs the psychological pain that they have. And so learning that and understanding how important social connection is and how it actually changes our brain, I think that's one of like the aha moments from doing this type of research. No, that's incredible validation to a lot of different studies from all different types of fields and different areas. It really points to how we have to connect to survive. And that's a quote that I took directly from Doc Springer, who's also a psychiatrist that helps a lot of military veterans as they're transitioning either from the military service to civilian life or when they're coping with PTSD, for example. That's a commonality in all different types of fields. And so what you just described is incredibly validating and it's incredibly fascinating too. Where or who do you draw your inspiration from in the work that you do? So I think going back to the life experience that I had, I would probably say that I draw most of my inspiration from my father. You know, despite the fact that today he's hemiplegic, so half of his body is paralyzed. It's the right side of his body that's paralyzed. He was a right-hand writer. Um, He had to go through so many changes in order to just be able to like adapt and live the way that he did before. So now he writes with his left hand, which is super difficult. He is able to drive now because he's able to use his left hand and has adapted his car in that way. He does a lot of the grocery shopping at home for my mom. So I think just seeing him go through so many of these changes, these physical changes, and then have his brain plastically change in response to it and adapt I think it's really motivating because, you know, there are times where I'm in the lab and an experiment doesn't work. And then I talked to my dad that day and I realized how difficult his day was just to be able to go to the grocery store or just to be able to wash himself. And the fact that he's able to do all those things every day, I think inspires me more as a neuroscientist. That's, that's incredibly inspiring. What are some of the innovations that you've been seeing in the neuroscience field? A lot of innovations um, and things that I'm really, really excited about. I think one that relates to the work that I'm doing is the whole sort of susceptibility versus resilience model. Um, you know, for many years, neuroscientists have focused on pathology, right? Like, what is the basis of depression? What is the basis of anxiety? What is the basis of stroke? And um, and we sort of ignored and neglected, like, what about people who are just super happy and people that are living their best 
life and people that are so adjusted. And what animal research is actually showing us is that those people that are resilient, those people that go through so much in their life and yet, you know, they are still so well adjusted. Um, these people have more brain changes than people who have gone through adversity and end up, you know, developing a mental illness, for instance. And so where the field is pushing is, well, why don't we understand what is it about healthy people, happy people, and use that biology to design better drugs to treat people who are not happy and people who are not well adjusted. And so that whole susceptibility versus resilience, I think that's going to be the future of designing better drugs um, for the treatment of, of mental illnesses. Another really fascinating area is biomarker discovery. Um, if you think about psychiatry or you've known somebody who's been on an antidepressant before, uh, you'll know that it's almost like a guessing game, right? It's like this antidepressant has worked in the past. Let's try it. Okay, this one's not working. Let's try another one. But within that time, people are experiencing a lot of adversity still, right? They're still experiencing that depression. It's taking a long time for the antidepressants to work. And so a lot of research today is developing blood-based biomarkers so that we can say, well, based off your biology, this is the personalized medicine that would help you in treating your depression. So I think that's uh, another area that is really, really interesting right now. You just reminded me about a book that I read, I want to say a couple months ago, and it's called The, the Collected Schizophrenias, or I'm probably butchering the name of that book by Esme Wang. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. It's incredibly fascinating. And it's her entire journey having schizophrenia from the time that she was in college all, all throughout her adulthood. And she was describing just how how subjective it is to be able to diagnose someone who might have a mental disorder or mental illness and how there has to be an innovation within that field that makes that a lot more um, dynamic and a lot more personalized to you, not just based on a study that was conducted 20 years ago. And it might resemble that. I was wondering if you had any thoughts around that. Yeah, totally. I, I talk to my students about this all the time. And it's one of the things that I say is that one of the areas where psychiatry needs a facelift is diagnosis. I mean, the sort of diagnostic Bible, if you will, um, is known as the DSM. And the DSM is, you know, reported to be based off statistical information, but not always, right? You have these task forces and working groups that are involved in the development of a diagnosis, but sometimes it's so hard to draw the line between what is one diagnosis versus another. And sometimes when you think about these diagnoses or sort of these categories that we use in psychiatry, they may not necessarily be based off of brain research. So I'll give you an example of this. If you think about the way that psychiatry works right now, um, you know, before 18 years old, you're in child psychiatry. And then after 18, you end up in adult psychiatry. And sort of that, that transition is very, very difficult for people. You go from being treated as a child to being treated as an adult. But we know that brain development doesn't just stop at 18 years old. I mean, new research is showing us that our brains might develop all the way until 29. And yeah, there's one particular circuit that connects the front of our brain to emotion centers, the amygdala, that develops all the way until 29. And that's why as we get older, we become better at managing emotions and you know, managing how aggressive we get or how we react to people. 
But with this information, we can say, okay, well, what if we created sort of a time point in the middle called emerging adulthood, where, you know, you transition smoothly, similar to how brain development is occurring into the adult system. So sort of leveraging that neuroscience and then using it to inform policy, I think is going to be important for giving sort of diagnosis a, a facelift. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I've been wondering that myself after reading her book, just how frustrating and how backwardated that is really. Just trying to, especially for a field that's so incredibly nuanced, how can you diagnose someone based on studies or based on a DSM that may or may not pertain to you and your condition? It poses challenges that are in turn opportunities in the field. And you're one of the people that are improving that. You're one of the people that's working directly on that. So thank you for doing that. One of the, the areas that's really exciting where sort of you and I and our paths might cross is also a lot of the like tech development in psychiatry as well. So if you think about the way that psychiatry is done today, right, you go into a clinic, your psychiatrist stays with you maybe for 15 minutes, asks you about your experiences. So think about the, the data there, right? Uh, it's non-ecological because you're getting information from a person in a clinic, not in their everyday life, right? When they're experiencing social challenges and adversity and et cetera, you'll also only get a small amount of information within that time period. Uh, and so what a lot of apps are trying to do or where there's a lot of development in psychiatry is to basically think, you know, what if we developed technology such that we could collect information throughout the day that you know, a patient is going through, like, what times of the day are they most anxious? And, you know, use this information to predict when a person is going to enter into a major depressive episode, when they're going to become manic, um, and, and whatnot. So, so I'm very excited about this. But there's going to have to be a lot of design thinking that goes into it, because, you know, patients with severe mental illnesses might not be able to sort of respond to these apps the same way that somebody without a mental illness would be able to. So there are going to be some challenges, but I'm, but I'm really excited to see where, where all this goes. That could be an incredible breakthrough. I love the way that you incorporated design thinking into your experimental design as well. And I'm just, I'm really curious. I would love for you to speak more about the death cafe that you run over at McGill. I'm incredibly interested in that. And what are some of the conversations that you all have? Yeah, so death cafes were were not created by me or my partner. They have existed for a very long time uh, and have been around in different countries all around the world. I think it's about 70 countries now. But basically what we found was that the death cafes that were running in Montreal were targeted towards older populations, right? So you would see a much older population going to these death cafes. And so my partner and I thought, you know, what if we brought this to the university community? right? Death is such a taboo topic. And Amanda and I, who's my partner in the Death Cafe, you know, we think about death all the time with the research that we're doing, with the postmortem work that we're doing. And so we thought, you know, what if we brought this to the McGill community, to the university community? How would students respond? And you wouldn't believe it, but our numbers were massive. We hit like fire codes. We had to turn people away from our Death Cafes. I mean, the average death cafe probably attracts eight, maybe 10 people. We were getting sometimes 65, sometimes 70 people. And so we sort of tapped into something where these young adults actually do want to talk about death and dying and they want a safe space 
to be able to, to go through some of the feelings. So we talk about everything. I mean, the conversation is not directed. There's no experts. Uh, we don't have a religious or philosophical stance. And we can talk everything from sort of what happens to your body when you die. Does it sort of impact the environment? Are there more sustainable ways for decomposing bodies? We talk about the fact that a lot of our practices are for the living, right? Funerals are for the living and not for the deceased. So we really delve into the nitty gritty. And for me, I've always had a difficult time with death and dying. I grew up in a very Christian home. Both my parents are very Christian. And so, you know, death has always been a part of uh, my upbringing and talking about the afterlife has always been part of my upbringing. And that always really scared me. Um, and so Death Cafe has helped to reduce some of that anxiety for me. No, it's incredibly important to have those safe spaces, to have these really hard to talk about conversations. And I love how you and your partner have opened up that space over at the university. And it just makes me wonder how many more safe spaces or how many more just spaces for dialogue we need um, to talk about really tough topics, really hard to understand topics as well. What is the future for the Death Cafe? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, so I think we're going to continue running our Death Cafes. We've been doing it virtually. We also have uh, panels where we get experts in different fields. So we've had a death doula come before, which is really exciting. So death doulas are similar to their birth doula counterparts, but they help a person smoothly transition into dying. Um, I've served as a guest where I talked about postmortem brain research. Uh, we've had funeral celebrants and sort of how to celebrate funerals. Um, you know, we've had tons of different guests. And so it's really great to learn uh, about these industries and learn about the death and dying industry from them. So based on your learnings and a lot of the conversations from the death cafes, how has that really influenced your science communications in general? Because you're basically bridging academia and real world application with these conversations. Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, even before the death cafes, I have been running sort of education events on understanding mental health and understanding suicide and understanding grief and all these really important conversations. And for me, the way that I bring it back into my work is to realize how important the work that we're doing actually is. You know, with postmortem brain research, you have this tendency to sometimes refer to samples as, you know, this sample didn't work very well uh, in my experiment, so I'm going to statistically remove the sample. And I think what that does is, is fails to recognize how important that person's life was as an individual. And then we as scientists can apply a statistical test that removes them because they're deviant in our data. And so what I've been doing is analyzing my data where I include outliers, include all subjects, and then also analyze it with those outliers removed so that I can really think about, you know, how important this person's sample actually was and, and the fact that they, you know, um, they're contributing to science in whatever way that they can, even if it is as an outlier. And, and I, try to, I try to teach my students this as well, right? I try to get them to think about 
about psychiatric research and sort of the overall goals of psychiatric research. So I think you were telling me this over email um, previously, how you could actually learn a lot about someone by a single strand of hair. I'd love for you to talk more about that. (laughs) Yeah. So I think a lot of people probably know what cortisol is, which is the the scary stress hormone everybody's scared of. We need cortisol to survive, so it's not that bad, but you know, it is also bad if we have too much of it. And what you can do is take a person's hair follicles and because hair develops really slowly, you can basically measure cortisol levels all the way uh, six months back, back in time. What some of my colleagues are doing is are looking at um, cortisol levels in hair samples during the pandemic to be able to understand sort of how did the pandemic influence or stress look at baseline levels and then look at post-pandemic levels and see what was going on for them stress-wise. Oh my God, my cortisol levels must be off the charts. And it's incredible to know that you can find that out just from a single strand of hair. What are some other really cool facts that that you know about that would be potentially helpful for people like you and me to learn more about? So, and I think all these ideas are really cool because you can leverage them and actually design technologies or products that the everyday person can use. So 23andMe, right, has the genomics that basically can link and see whether or not, you know, you metabolize caffeine really quickly or can link and see whether or not you have risk for this disease or so on and so forth. That's looking at just the genetic code, but one of the areas that I specialize in is epigenetics. Epigenetics are basically uh, how life experiences influences the expression of our DNA and our genome. And so there's actually this thing called the epigenetic clock, um, which was uh, created by a really well-known researcher in the field. And what you can do is basically look at your epigenetic age. Now, what some researchers have shown is that, for instance, trauma ages our epigenetic clock. And so they've also developed an alternative to this clock called the Grim Age Clock. I posted it on my science Instagram account and people were like super excited and also weirded out by it at the same time. But the Grim Age Clock basically uses epigenetic signatures to predict if you were to die from old age, when would you die and how old would you die? That's not including sort of accidents, but sort of just based off your epigenetics how long are you likely to live? And what I got from people in responding to that was some people don't want to know. And then other people are like, yeah, I totally want to know. I think that's kind of cool too. It's kind of like the scientific validated version of a fortune teller, if you will. (laughs) I love it. It's funny that you say that because usually when I meet somebody for the first time and I tell them, what I do for a living, their first question is, do you know what I'm thinking? And my answer is usually neuroscientist, not psychic. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. Wow. So Daniel, you've been working as a neuroscientist for many, many years. And if you could create a, the one specific contribution to, let's say like a product that you and I could use, what would you invent? What, what would be your, your number one invention that you would want to pursue? Whoa, that's a, that's a really good question and difficult question. I know for a fact that I would probably be selfish and get in the space of psychiatry because that's the area that I've done the most work in and, and I'm really excited about. 
Uh, I think I would probably want to develop, yeah, better markers of, of mental illness that can help a person predict whether or not they're at risk for mental illness. So for instance, if you think about um, uh, genetics counseling, right? You can go, let's say that you're planning to get pregnant, you can go see a genetics counselor and determine whether or not you, your fetus or your baby will have a risk of developing a neurodevelopmental disorder or cancer or something like that. It'd be really interesting if we make it to a point in our field where we can also do that for mental illness and psychiatry, right? You're, you're more likely to develop this over this. Um, I think that would be, that would be really, really important and can help us design better healthcare strategies and more accessible healthcare strategies for people that are at risk, have high risk of developing a mental illness, making sure that those individuals in particular are really well taken care of. So you mentioned something earlier around the need for connection and how much influence that has on the, the brain chemistry and how people develop. And so I'd love for you to speak more about that and responsible mental health communication. Yeah, so I think this is a fascinating topic. I, I have an entire section in a lot of the workshops that I do that talks about sort of our, our call to action and what we can do um, with respect to, to mental illness. So I think the first thing is to become familiar with a lot of the language that we use when it comes to, to mental illness. I mean, mental illnesses are already so stigmatized and you can sort of see that in some of the ways that we talk about them. So, you know, the number of times I've heard somebody that will say, you know, oh, I need to have my house organized a certain way. I need to make sure that everything's clean. I'm so OCD. When in reality, somebody living with OCD, you know, they're going through a lot and that's not sort of the same as what we're talking about there. Or even the way that we talk about suicide. I mean, the common phrase is so-and-so commit suicide. Um, that actually comes from a past when suicide was a crime. So people commit crimes, they don't commit death. And so the most sort of um, the most sensitive way of talking about it would be to die by suicide, a person who died by suicide. There's often a, one of the commercials I like to show in one of my classes is one where an individual is hit by a car and then a bunch of people crowd around them and say, you know, get up, you're being lazy. It's nothing. You just got hit by a car. And then the screen fades and it says, you know, what if we treated every illness the way that we treat uh, mental illness? So I think, yeah, being more sensitive and compassionate to mental well-being, even, even people that are just going through a lot of stress right now and a lot of distress. I know, you know, going to the grocery store in the middle of the pandemic and there not being toilet paper there and you getting really stressed out and anxious about that and then sort of taking it out on somebody that works there, they're going through a lot as well. Right. So just being a lot more compassionate to humanity and recognizing that we're all in this together and taking steps towards bettering humanity in general. I think that's sort of my call to action when it comes to, to mental illness. Yeah. So this has been an incredibly enlightening conversation. And for those who are listening who want to learn more about the work that you do and the epigenetic clock. So where can they find that? Uh, so if they want to follow me, I have Instagram and Twitter. So it's postmortem and then PhD. Uh, <laughs> get it? Postmortem PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and then also you can add me on LinkedIn um, as well. I do hold a couple of death cafes and uh, a lot of psychoeducation events. And I post those on LinkedIn. 
Um, and I post a lot of my speaking engagements on Instagram as well. So um, anybody is welcome to, to follow me there and also reach out to me. I learned so much from people reaching out to me. There are times where after a workshop, somebody will come forward and talk about an experience that they've had. And I think each time that that happens, it makes me a better scientist. And it makes me, I think, all in all, a more human scientist, which I think is really important. I love that. Being a more human scientist. And the only way that we can do that is to interact with each other, to learn from each other. And so, yeah, definitely feel free to reach out and... I'm really curious to hear more about the progress of your experiments as well. So thank you so much, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Inner Wealth. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll join us next week as we continue to explore all the ways success is being redefined in our ever-changing world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Instagram at Forbes Ignite for more thought-provoking content and opportunities to engage with us. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal. Thanks for joining us.